There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. All right, listeners, welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. It's great to have you with us again today. It's great to have, from the Hoosier State, a good friend of mine, entrepreneur Todd Connor, with us for the entire podcast today. Todd, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Chris, thank you so much. So good to be with you. You know, I know you live in Indiana, but you're broadcasting from the Volunteer State in Tennessee today. Uh, you know, last week we had on another great Hoosier on the show, the second lady, Mrs. Karen Pence. So I feel with Big Ten football coming up here, uh, you know, maybe we're doing a pregame road trip and maybe we have to add somebody on from Iowa or Wisconsin or maybe in the SEC now. So we'd love your thoughts on that once, uh, once you get back home. Well, absolutely. And I'll tell you, I was on a conversation uh, yesterday with a, a former NFL player. Uh, he, he and I were uh, chatting on the, the, the conversation of entrepreneurship and uh, I let him know that I too am a varsity uh, athlete from a Big Ten school. I went to Northwestern University and uh, if you saw me right now, you'd know that I was not a football player uh, or an athlete for that matter, but I was Willie the Wildcat, the school mascot. So technically being the mascot is part of uh, cheerleading uh, and cheerleading, of course, is a varsity sport. So I, I sort of um, through, through a, a loophole uh, managed to earn my varsity letter jacket at a Big Ten school. Which I'm very <laughs> proud of. So I have a question about that. I'm not sure if you can share. So if you can see on my desk here, I've got uh, out of the orange from my uh, alma mater, Syracuse. For those folks who are out of during games, you're not allowed to tell anybody while you're in school that you're out of the orange. You have to wait till you're, you're, you've graduated and you moved on. Was that the same case in Northwestern? It was. I think I almost violated it several times uh, because <laughs> it's supposed to be a, a, a closely guarded secret. And uh, uh, so I did try to hide the fact that I was uh, Willie the Wildcat, but um, uh, yeah, it was a poorly guarded secret. And as soon as I <laughs> left campus, it was a uh, not even attempted to be a, a guarded secret. So it's uh, it's out there now, and uh, it Love was it. Um, yeah, had a lot of fun doing it. A lot of story. We'd have a whole show on just stories <laughs> being the things that you learn about people and yourself in the process. A great asterisk on that. Thanks for that, Todd. <laughs> uh, for our listeners here, uh, Todd Connor is a widely sought-after speaker and thought leader. He's also an entrepreneurial consultant and author of Third Shift Entrepreneur, which was just released last week on September 28th. His leadership and business experiences in both the public and private sectors have equipped him with the knowledge to facilitate an environment in which leaders thrive and transform the way that individuals think and deal with challenges that life presents. And he offers actionable insights that will help listeners really recognize and overcome the fears that are holding them back so they too can choose their own entrepreneurial dreams. He's the founder of Bunker Labs, a national entrepreneurial organization with 30 chapters across the United States that work with military veterans and spouses who want to start their own businesses. So Todd, before we get on to your new book and Bunker Labs, you know, can you please share your background with us? You, know, you mentioned going to school at, at, uh, at Northwestern. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And, and how was life before you became an entrepreneurial consultant and uh, world-renowned author? <laughs> sure. No, happy to, Chris. I, uh, well, I, I come from the suburbs of Chicago um, and, uh, uh, you know, youngest of three kids, went to uh, Northwestern University. I, I'll add a footnote, which is I, as a junior in high school, I spent a year um, 
as a congressional page uh, working in the House of Representatives, which is a pretty amazing thing. If you are um, into politics as I was, it was a little akin, uh, the metaphor I offer is, um, it's like being a, a really obsessed, um, you know, the biggest Bulls fan at, as a high school kid. And they've asked you to be, you know, hand out the water bottles, you know, courtside, you know, and you have that kind of intimacy with the players. That's what it was for me as a junior in high school to go to Washington, D.C. and to sit on the floor of the House of Representatives for nine months and kind of soak in everything that was happening. This was 1996. This is, you know, during uh, when the Republicans flipped the House and Newt Gingrich became Speaker. And so that was a foundational experience for me. I went to Northwestern University, which was, you know, of course, a foundational experience. Um, and I, as a freshman, decided to join the ROTC program, um, which is, you know, at that point, then a commitment to, to serve in the, in the military, in my case, the United States Navy. Um, and, um, you know, life sort of took a course from there going forward. Um, I, you know, served on active duty from 2000 to 2004. We had uh, obviously 9-11 uh, occurred within that time span. The world changed for all of us in different ways. And certainly if you were in the military at that time, it changed uh, you know, what we were doing, we went from being a, um, you know, kind of port side in San Diego to, you know, deploying for an extended deployment over to the Persian Gulf, um, shooting some, you know, Tomahawk missiles engaged in Operation Iraqi Freedom and everything that followed. Um, and so, uh, you know, came back in, in um, you know, 2005, went to business school at the University of Chicago and, you know, at that point sort of started a, a career in management consulting and I'll, bookend this part of the story by just saying, you know, I was working as a management consulting, having, you know, done things in my life that felt bold and that felt public service oriented, that really felt for me, what fires me up, what gets me up in the morning is wanting to sort of do things that seem ambitious or seem personally challenging, but doing it in a spirit of service for others or service in, in you know, for the country, which is something that I think matters to me. Um, and having kind of moved through the MBA program and then getting into a management consulting job, I felt like that piece of me was missing, you know, the things I'd done in high school, the things I'd done um, in college, you know, the mascot experience, notwithstanding. <laughs> um, but, you know, being in the military and, and doing things uh, that felt connected to, to our country um, was a part of me that was missing, you know, in a career path as a management consulting where, you know, on paper, you're successful, quote unquote, right? Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, success um, externally defined or monetarily defined isn't what I'm after in this short life. It's, you know, hopefully things that are impactful for others. And so, um, so that's a long winded way of saying as a, after a couple of years as a management consultant, I, I quit and said, I'm going to start my own business and I'm going to do things that are in the public sector and, and hopefully in the public interest. And thus began in 2008, sort of a journey that has really continued ever since. And um, this path of, you know, starting things and pursuing projects that feel important to you, um, which is also the genesis of how you start a business, which we can talk more about, has kind of, um, you know, defined what I've been doing professionally since, you know, 2008 and beyond. So you talked about interning on the floor in, in, the, in the Capitol, talk about your, your public service commitment and passion to serve the country. This might be for another, uh, another show in the future, but any thought on politics, entering politics? You know, I ran for office in 2009, and that's part of what I did when I left management consulting. Um, it was I said, you know, look, there's things I want to do, and I don't know how the path I've been on gets me to doing some of these other things I want to figure out, like, you know, stepping into public service. 
And so I just, you kind of ripped the bandaid off and, 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 uh, and I had some thoughts as to things that I thought could be better in Chicago. Um, and, uh, and I just went and, and, you know, did things like showed up at public meetings that people don't really pay attention to and took, took notes on what's going on here. And is this good? And could it be better? And, um, got curious, you know, um, there, there is no better teacher than doing, you know, and some, there's some things where I'm thinking, gosh, I'm really interested in what's happening in our, in our political environment, but I, but I don't know how to take my life and, and move it in that direction. If that's something where I think I can be of value. So that's a long conversation about running for office, but I really admire people that run for office and having done it myself, um, have an appreciation for how hard it is and also how important it is. And that, um, you know, I, I understand that people sort of look at politics today and, and have a, you know, and there's a lot of distasteful elements of it, but, you know, the remedy as in all things has to be, um, you know, good people stepping forward. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking it like we all are, uh, I think today, you know, like what's going on with our country and how do we move our country in a, in a better direction. Um, and so politics matters. Um, you know, how, how you get there is sort of a long, a long conversation, but it's something that I actively think about, you know, this country is, you know, if you just strip it down to the roots, I mean, it, it is, the citizens are the mechanism by which we always get it wrong. And the citizens are the mechanism by which we always get it right. So I just would say, yeah, like, I don't think if you care about this country, I don't think it's a season for any of us to sit on the sidelines. We have to play a role and that, and that, that needs to look, you know, like in small ways, like poll watching, you know, in the election next month, which I plan to do and ensuring vote, voting integrity and ensuring voting, you know, that people get out and vote. Um, and I think sometimes it's got to involve um, bigger things, you know, like launching organizations that ensure people start businesses and run for office and bring their best talents forward. So this is our uh, country. It's our family. And, uh, you know, family reunions are interesting sometimes. Right. Um, but that's um, that just means that we have our work cut out. So. Exactly. So we talked about this path you've been on, you know, from the, the mascot and, and varsity athlete to ROTC to, to serving our nation in wartime. How did this path lead you to found Bunker Labs? Yeah. Um, I think that you move through life with um, a idea that you can kind of sort of adopt two, two mentalities. And I want to set the stage for, you know, my, you know, for Bunker Labs and what came next. But I think you can move through life with this idea that like, I don't do new things because I'm not good at them. Or I choose to do new things because that's where the, that's where I learn. And that's where the growth is. And that's where the discovery is. And so I've opted to sort of, you know, where I can choose to do new things because I think that's where the growth is and the discovery is. And sometimes you do things like, you know, become the school mascot. God, sometimes you do things that don't work or where you aren't needed and there's no value to be had. And then sometimes you do things where there's, you know, the market has a response and says, Hey, we appreciate that you're pursuing this and we want to collaborate, you know, and customers show up if you want to be technical on the matter. Um, and so in 2014, I was running a management consulting business that I'd started prior to that and was participating in some mentorship at a uh, local co-working um, kind of innovation space called 1871 in Chicago, downtown Chicago in the Merchandise Mart. And there was a lot of cool stuff happening there. And, you know, I didn't, I wasn't entrenched in that scene because I'm not a technology um, uh, entrepreneur and I'm not a venture capitalist, right? And some of that infrastructure is really built around tech startups and, and the investor community and helping create a marketplace for those communities to come together. 
And I had, you know, I, I had never really identified even as an entrepreneur. I just know that I had started a couple of different consulting businesses and I had launched a couple of nonprofit initiatives. And, you know, I was a guy who started things, but I didn't sort of self-identify as an entrepreneur. But I was at 1871 meeting with some folks, having some conversations, and I was seeing things happening there um, to help people start businesses. And there was initiatives focused on women uh, wanting to start businesses. There was initiatives focused on, you know, healthcare IT and, um, you know, food science innovation and, you know, fintech and, you know, kind of all these different sectors. And I sort of just got curious and asked the question of the people in charge, you know, hey, have you thought about military veterans as, a, as an audience that might be interested in, in participating in a bigger way? And, um, I think it's that attitude of just curiosity about what what maybe you see as a gap in the marketplace and you think, huh, how could this be better? And and I just ask the question. And sometimes when you ask the question, it just comes back at you like, well, if you think that's a good idea, you should do something about it. Right. And so um, so uh, friends of mine that were running uh, 1871 kind of put the challenge back. And I said, well, yeah, let's let's see if we can do something helpful here, useful here. I, I don't know if there's a marketplace for military veterans to really want to start businesses, but let's put a flag up and see what happens. And so that's what we did. We came together and um, quickly I pulled together some, some friends of mine that had served. Um, we talked to not only veterans, but military spouses and even some active duty uh, serving folks and said, are you thinking about starting businesses? And uh, we had an announcement at the Pat Tillman Foundation luncheon in 2014. And the mayor was there and some other influential folks. And they said, hey, we're gonna launch this initiative called The Bunker at 1871. And I sort of braced for, you know, it's either going to be like a, a, a giant silent moment where like there is no reaction or, or there's going to be a big reaction or it's going to be something in between. And I think what we saw was a big reaction. A lot of folks, we had about 60 folks reach out and say, I'm interested. I want to start a business or I'm a veteran and I've got a small business, but I'd love support or I'd love to hire other veterans or I'd love to mentor or invest. And so this ecosystem kind of emerged quickly and, um, and I was still running, you know, my other business, but um, saw that this had, you know, opportunity and potential. And we kind of cultivated it, curated it, grew it, got some sponsors on board that were amazing. And, you know, within six months, we had, you know, a functioning organization. Um, what happened next was a lot of inbound inquiries from other cities and other leaders around the country saying, hey, I love what you're doing in Chicago. We should do it over here in DC. We should do it here in, um, you know, in you know, Tennessee. We should do it over here in San Diego. And, um, and that's, you know, over the last seven years, that's what we've been doing is scaling this, this organization to about 35 cities today and hopefully, you know, all 50 states within the next couple of years. Well, that was some flag you put in the ground. Like you mentioned, you've got 35 chapters out there. So uh, congratulations to you and the team on that phenomenal success. I appreciate that. I, I think it's, I'll, you know, I think the team, the team deserves a lot of credit. I, I think really, though, it's about the the network of military veterans who've done the work you know it's we lean heavily on volunteers and mentors and it's a community that has a deep affinity for it for others in the community you know that that love is intrinsic and there and it's really i think what we did is we sh we showed up and we plant we put you know put a flag in the ground um the rally point if you will to say this is where you can show up if you want to be part of that movement, right? But it's the people that show up that make it valuable. And um, and that's really what I believe is that it's it's networks that we have to create to uh, in order to facilitate the value. But the value comes from the people in the network. You know, our, our job is to be the convener. 
Um, and yeah, we offer programs and things like that, but the value um, comes from the fact that when the military community is connected to itself, it can, it can deliver value for itself, right? It can't deliver the value if it doesn't know how to show up and convene. And so our job um, was really, I think, to build that network effect and, uh, and then allow the value to sort of be created from, from that place. The, the last thing I'd say on this is, and it's a, it's a metaphor for other communities as well, but I, when I think about the military community, it's one of the strongest alumni networks in the world. You know, if you think about all the people that have worn the uniform, military spouses, we have tentacles in every major company, you know, every you know, agency of the federal government, every sector you can think of. So a very powerful network, but we don't even have an alumni association. We don't have an entity whose job it is to ensure that people stay engaged. You know, and our universities are great at, you know, re-engaging us. They do it all the time, right? But the military, that's not their job. Their job is to fight, the, you, know, you know, serve our nation's interest in combat and in peacetime. Um, so they're not in the business of alumni engagement. But I saw that if we could create that effect, um, there's enormous potential there. And that's what we have, I think, unlocked more than anything. It's just that potential that exists already within that community. Well, you're clearly seeing results going from one to, to 35 chapters nationally, but what are some of those results you're seeing at Bunker Labs? And maybe as a follow-up, what surprised you the most as you work with veterans and their spouses who want to start their own business? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start with maybe what su surprises me the most, which is, and maybe this isn't a surprise, but so many uh, people want to start businesses. You know, um, I mean, the data suggests it's about 25% of transitioning military veterans that want to start businesses. And I think it's maybe even higher than that. And really it's about, you know, it's about a fulfillment that they're seeking. You know, it's a fulfillment that, you know, when you're in, in uniform, which is I matter and my work matters, you know, like you just know that implicitly. It's not to say that being in the military isn't frustrating sometimes, but you know that you are part of something bigger than yourself that has a purpose. And I think that humans, more than anything, we just want that sense of purpose. We, we want that sense of belonging and purpose, that my life matters, the work I'm doing matters, and the people with whom I'm doing it care about me and I care about them. You know, I think that, Chris, is, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's what most of us are, are seeking. It's not, uh, you know, it's not the financial rewards of being, you know, a quote-unquote business owner. It's not that. It's the fulfillment that we're seeking. And that fulfillment, when you know it in the military, is particularly acute when you leave the military and you don't feel it. You know, and I think that, you know, so much of uh, the conversation about military veterans and the transition is really just about that. It's like we're taking people who have lived incredibly fulfilled lives, purpose-driven lives, and it isn't, you know, it is necessary, in my view, that they get a job on the other side, but it is not sufficient. You know, it's necessary that we care for their mental and physical health and their economic security, but it is not sufficient. Sufficient is uh, the opportunity to, to realize their, their um, you know, fully self-actualized aspirations and potential. Um, and it's not just something that I think we owe them. It's something that selfishly, I think we want as a society, right? Particularly in this day and age where the, the problems that we're facing are, and, and frankly, so much of it is a failure in leadership, in my view, and who better to sort of solve the void of leadership um, than the military community. So, um, you know, so 
I am in the business of, yes, helping people start businesses, but that's not why I get up in the morning. Why I get up in the morning is because I want to see people uh, fully realized of their, you know, in their potential. Um, and, and, and really the people that we're working with most often are, are not people that are uh, unemployed. It's people that have transitioned out of the military and they're, they're fine. You know, on paper, they're fine. And this is a lot of people that I know from my own life um, beyond the military community. They're fine. Um, there's not a problem statement on paper. You know, you look at LinkedIn and they're fine. But what I know is that in, internally, they feel like I know there's more. And I believe that I have more to give. And I don't know whether I should um, honor that, that whisper, if you will. That's actually what Oprah Winfrey calls it, the whisper. I don't know if I should honor that or if I should learn to ignore it. Those are kind of my choices. Uh, and, and I'm tempted to learn to ignore it because in a lot of cases, I've already put my spouse through a lot, <laughs> pursuing things that I deemed important. Um, or because I don't want to create a disruption for my family or f the financial risk, or I don't know what I don't know. And so is this irresponsible? But that's what they're negotiating. It's not just the business idea. It's this question of, should I convince myself that what I've got is good enough? Or do I honor and listen to uh, and find a path forward for that part of me, that private part of me that says, I think there's more. I think there's more I could do. Um, and that's and and you could maybe say that that's ego driven. I, I really think for a lot of folks, particularly for the military community, it's purpose driven. It's like, look, I don't want to sit on the sidelines if I feel like I've got a higher uh, contribution that I could be making. And the entrepreneurs that I work with and that I know, and particularly the good ones, they operate with that sense of purpose and service and and frankly urgency. You know that there's something I could be doing. Uh, and so that that to me is what is what this is all about. And the numbers, I mean, we can talk about the numbers, but you know, we we measure impact in terms of you know you know dollars raised. We uh, cumulatively across the network of about thirty two hundred businesses that we're supporting, they generated about eight hundred million dollars in earned revenue. They raised, um, I want to say, it's about six hundred million dollars in outside capital or debt capital. Um, and you know, they hired people. They you know disproportionately hired other military veterans. Um, they generate wealth for themselves. They generate wealth for the community uh, in which they operate. So there's lots of economic impact. But for me, the real uh, indicator of success is we, in our national incubation program, in partnership with WeWork, we incubated about 280 companies in the last cohort. 60% of them generated their first revenue throughout the course of those six months. And it's that zero to one impact that I am really obsessed with because that to me is the causation that says I wouldn't have started were it not for Bunker Labs. I'm not that interested in, you know, it's nice if you get a unicorn that slips through and generates billions of dollars. That's great. But I'm more interested and more passionate in the, the person who says, you know, my life's fine, but maybe I'll give it a go. And, and they step into a program and then they generate their first dollar. I think if you can do that with more people, you change the, the trajectory of their lives. So, so as someone who's been in the financial services industry for 25 years, you know, those are incredible revenue numbers. So congratulations to you and the team. And you use the phrase purpose-driven. You know, you've talked about public service. You talk about whether to listen or not or to ignore. Uh, we need folks like you out there. So I hope you listen and, and keep on driving. So I know it's a lot in you and your family, but uh, we appreciate all the work that you've done and what you started. So uh, thanks for all of that. Thanks, Chris. You know, and you've talked about the 35 chapters across the U.S., um, going from one to 35. If someone, if one of our listeners wants to uh, 
get involved in Bunker Labs and see one form in their community, what should they do or how should they reach out? Yeah, come to bunkerlabs.org. And we've actually got a, a process by which we kind of receive inquiries from cities. We can get you engaged today. If you want to start a business, we've got online programs. We have a, a thriving Facebook community. We have, it feels like 24 hour live support within the community. So if you need introductions or need help or want to talk to someone about how to raise money or, you know, whatever it is, we, we have a community of folks that are engaged. And, you know, part of what I know is the more you give, the more you get. And so it's a community of people that are, really all in the hustle of starting things and they are generous with their time and, and they get a lot in return. And I think that's the right philosophy if you're going to start stuff. So you can go to bunkerlabs.org and, um, and let us know. We've got a waiting list of, um, I think now it's about 110 cities across the country. And what's exciting to me about the list is, you know, what gives me anxiety is that we haven't met the need. What, what gives me uh, excitement is that it's a lot of, um, kind of middle market communities in this country that say, Hey, look, you know, there's, there's action to be had here in Clarksville, Illinois. You know, it doesn't, the action, it, you know, does not have to simply swirl around Silicon Valley, which has a lot of social capital and, and financial capital barriers, right? It's sort of, that's the, the sort of nexus of a lot of deal flow in this country. 97% of invested dollars, I think, flow through Silicon Valley, but I don't think 97% of the good ideas make it there. So, it's disproportionate in terms of where the capital access is. It's disproportionate in terms of the social capital, which is like, you got to know the right people, but it's not where all the good ideas are. And it's certainly not where all the talent is. It's I think the good ideas and the talent are in cities and towns across this country. And that's, that is where, you know, I want to get to quicker because I think that's, who's going to, um, you know, move this country forward. It's not going to be um, sort of a, a vaulted and, and, and ultra wealthy elite. It's going to happen in, in communities across this country. You're listening to Next Steps Forward. We're with Todd Connor, famous author and entrepreneur. I'm your host, Chris Meek. We'll be right back after this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show. 
hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right, listeners, welcome back. I'm Chris Meek. This is Next Step Forward. And again, we're here with Todd Connor today, sought-after speaker, thought leader, entrepreneurial consultant, recently author, and just all-around good guy. Todd, thanks again for joining us here today. Thanks, Chris. I love being with you. So the first half, we talked about your entrepreneur side. Second half of the show, I want to focus on your book. I know it was a big undertaking. So let's shift gears uh, and talk about the third shift entrepreneur and the advice you have for people thinking about starting their own business. You know, what does it take to recognize and certainly overcome our fears? Uh, so maybe let's start with first the recognize part, because I think it goes to the heart of that old adage of you can't really solve a problem until you admit that you have one. You know, and sometimes that's a, a much bigger barrier to success than some people realize. Yeah, I think uh, this is such an important conversation. And if you're listening to this right now, the question I have for you is, what is it that you what idea is it that you've got tumbling around? in your brain that you haven't gone public with yet. And I think when you frame it to people that way, you get a really different answer than do you want to become an entrepreneur? So the language here matters. And, and part of what I've observed in working at, you know, and seeing all the accelerator programs and being in co-working spaces and really taking this dive into the entrepreneurship economy over the course of the last seven years is so much of it is permission-based um, you know, there's like pitch competitions and there's applications and it's like those with the resources and then those trying to get the resources. And I really think that we need to present an alternative pathway that I've seen really be successful for so many people, including in my own life, which is you don't need permission. What you do need, and you don't, this is really important because this is the nature of the third shift entrepreneur. You don't have to quit your job and you don't have to create risk. And in fact, it's the entrepreneurs that create risk for themselves, that put themselves up against artificial deadlines um, that doom not only themselves, but more importantly, in this context, the business, right? So if your business doesn't have an end date, then the business has time to figure out what's the marketplace it's serving? What is it that the customers really want? What is the gap that I'm filling? What is the problem that I'm solving? And the longer and more time we can give that question, the higher the probability of success. Because it's not a, um, it's not like 
playing a game of darts, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's running a set of science experiments, right. And, and finding out through controlled experimentation, what's the thing that works. And once we know that, and we can prove that and then prove that people want it, then we kind of build and scale from there. So I just think that there's a different way to do this stuff. And it's not, um, it's not shark tank. It's not um, one sort of moment of glitz and glamor. It's not winning the lottery. Um, but I think people, unless you have a mental model for what this can be, you, you revert to thinking it's, it's like Shark Tank, because that might be the only thing that you've got exposure to, if you don't come from a family of entrepreneurs. And so I want to reclaim this conversation around entrepreneurship. I want people to understand that it's something you can do from where you're at with the resources you have. I want people to understand that you don't have to quit your job. And in fact, you shouldn't. You know, if you want to become a thought leader on something, start a podcast, do that at night, do it on the weekends. That's what I call the third shift. You know, the first shift is your job. The second shift is your family, the things you do in the community, your service. And then the third shift is, is the nooks and crannies of, you know, the time that's left, you know, in the night, in the nights, in the mornings and, and everything in between. And so if you're willing to give the time and do the work, um, there's a pathway into entrepreneurship that says, I don't quit until I start. And I don't quit until I've proven that there's traction, until there's a pull. And frankly, a financial imperative that is so positive and so compelling that it only makes sense to quit to keep going. And, uh, and I think this is a really different way of talking about entrepreneurship. But I really believe that if we reframe how things can get started in this, in this country, people will see that entrepreneurship is more accessible than they thought. More people will start things we will get more innovation. We will get more people uh, generating wealth for themselves. We will get more people uh, starting businesses in general, fewer people failing, and, and, and sort of secondary layers of, of good things that happen as a result, right? When more people start businesses, more people generate wealth, more people then run for office, more people sort of make a positive contribution charitably to the, to the communities, more people establish a leadership position for themselves. So I just think entrepreneurship is so imperative we need more people doing it, but we're only going to get more people doing it as we reframe uh, the way in which we talk about it and the path towards it. So let's talk about the second part of the question. How do our listeners out there overcome our fears so we can actually chase those dreams and turn them into a reality? Yeah, it's a great question. Because people, when you say, do you want to start a, a you know, you want to become an entrepreneur? That's a, that's a big question. It sounds scary. Entrepreneurship is a French word. It's a long word. It's a complicated word to spell. I spell it about 500 times a day and I <laughs> wish it was, <laughs> couldn't we have called it, you know, you know, I don't know, some three letter word. Um, so it's an intimidating word. Fear is predicated on unknown. Fear is driven by what is unknown to us, right? We, we become scared in the dark because we can't see. Right, so it's unknown. We become scared about um, something that changes in our um, in our work environment because it's unknown. We don't have control. So, so the crux of fear is what is unknown and what is uh, what we think we don't have control over. So, to to deal with fear in starting a business is to simply deal with unknowns and control. And if you said, Chris, you know, look, I really want to open a bakery. And uh, I think my community would love a bakery. Um, and you, you go about opening a bakery, which is to say you sign a commercial lease, you hire a brand consultant, you hire your head baker, you, you get ready to hire and onboard a bunch of employees. 
Um, you come up with sort of the menu for the bakery, you've got the location identified, and then you pick a date, you know, two months from now that the bakery is going to open. And you're sitting there thinking, I've already put $200,000 into this business. I, um, I, there's a date that I'm going to open this business, but it's still two months away. I've, I'm already burning $30,000 a month in cash flow. And now I'm terrified because I know that come October 1st, when this business opens, it either is going to work or it's not, but I've already committed to it. So that whole scenario of entrepreneurship, which is, I think, how most people think you start a business, is absolutely terrifying. And my proposal is, how do you strip that back towards a whole bunch of things that you can make known, right, currently what you think is unknown? What are the slow steps into you know, discovering what's possible, right? So what are the conversations that we could have with commercial brokers about, you know, what's the history of what restaurants have worked here in the past? What pop-up stand can we put, you know, at the, at the place where we're thinking of putting a full bakery and saying, you know, huh, let's stand here for a few days and sell, you know, homemade donuts and see who stops and gets curious. What if no one walks by? Well, we've obviously got the wrong location or the wrong idea right? What are other bakers doing in the area? Can we go sit and observe those bakeries for, you know, a whole day, right? And it's amazing the amount of due diligence that we can do for free, other than our time, uh, to really make known these supposed unknowns. Um, and that's true, I think, it, in the vast majority of businesses. You know, there are some you could argue that you really don't know if it's going to work until you've put a ton of money into it, uh, maybe, but you can be pretty sure and you can do a lot in partnership with who you think are going to be the customers, right? Even before you launch, if you want to open a catering business, let's, let's say, let's go back to the bakery example. You think that catering is going to be a big part of your uh, revenue. Well, what are the local companies that you think would hire you? Go to them. Hey, are you satisfied with your current caterers? Why, why not? What would it look like for you to want to jump ship to go to a new caterer? Well, they'd have to have great lunch options. We'd really want the breakfast to look more like this because we don't like it like this. You know, and you can discover all this. You can literally build your menu in partnership with your customers and say, okay, I've heard you exactly. Here's the menu. I've printed it. Would this work for you? You know, if I delivered exactly this to you, would you move the business over to me at this price point? You know, and customers will tell you. I mean, you can pre-commit, pre-build, right? So much of this. Now you might say, well, that sounds like a lot of work. It is work. But the alternative is, is you spend all the money and find out later whether or not it works. And so I'm arguing for a, a cautious and strategic and researched approach to entrepreneurship that you do you know, before you ever quit your job. You do it from the place that you're at. And that's true if you want to become your own management consultant. It's especially true if you want to start a nonprofit. It's true if you, I think it's even true if you want to build a technology company. You know, and you have some sort of solution that you want to build. Um, and there's lots of threads to this. And there's lots of strategies that I present in the book um, from including things like talking to your current employer about allowing them, uh, allowing you to build it from where you're at includes demonstrating how you've already created the solution before you ever charge for it. You know, it's doing this kind of extensive market research. It's, it's finding light touch versions of the business that you want to build, um, doing all these things that sort of make known the unknowns before you ever launch. And if you can begin to do all these things, the point at which you actually, quote unquote, launch the business, you've already answered all the unknowns. You already know who your key clients are. You already know what the revenue looks like. You already know what the cash flows are. You already know the location that you've chosen. Um, and then, you know, and then you've de-risked the thing, right? So that, and so nothing in that process feels scary. So I, you know, 
easier said than done. Yes. Uh, but I will tell you, having started four different things that this works, you know, and it's worked for me in a lot of endeavors and it can work for people too. The Ford of your book was written by Iron Mike Stedman. His first venture after serving in the U.S. Marine Corps was to launch a free boxing gym for inner city youth and young adults in Newark, New Jersey. He describes third shift entrepreneur as, and I quote, a playbook for the rest of us, military veterans, women, black and brown entrepreneurs, first generation entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs from rural communities and small towns, LGBTQ entrepreneurs, low income entrepreneurs, nonprofit entrepreneurs, and even just good hearted and ambitious people who may not want to start business, but want to take action to live a more purpose driven life. When it comes to military veterans, entrepreneurs of color, first generation entrepreneurs and the other folks that Mike, Mike Stephanie mentions there, you know, what's different for them in terms of taking their next steps forward and why do you think that they need a different playbook? Yeah, it's, I mean, this is so important. I mean, the playbook that I think we think exists is really predicated and, and there's great literature out there. I want to be clear. Um, but a lot of the literature that talks about how to start a business is, is on the assumption that you want to build a highly scalable business and it's, it's assumed to also be a technology business. You know, accelerator programs definitionally are built around that model, most of them. Any ones that give you money are built around the idea that we're going to, push, we're going to invest a little bit of money in your business and there's a portfolio of 10 companies and we need one or two of them to really pop to sort of you know, cover, the, cover the nut of the whole thing. And, um, and that's how that works. That's how venture capitalists invest. I mean, they're looking for things that can deliver an outsized return based on quick scale. Uh, in some cases, not even profitability, but, but sort of speed of scale. And so that's an important playbook, but it's a very specific playbook. I can't tell you how many people I talk to who are trying to open, you know, um, you know personal training gyms and restaurants and, um, you know, management consulting businesses and their own accounting, you know, comp- you know boutique CPA firms and uh, open up, non- you know, launch nonprofits and launch, you know, boutique media companies and things like that. I mean, the vast majority of businesses that we interface with and they're asking, how do I get in front of investors? And, and they don't even have the kind of business that should ever go in front of an investor. You know, investors don't even look at this kind of business, right? It's an entire category that they would never consider. Um, and people just don't know that. They just don't know that, hey, for a business like this, you bootstrap it or you get a loan or my argument, you do all these things, you figure out all these things that you can figure out in advance before you sort of go and launch the thing, right? Um, and so I think that when people think of entrepreneurship, it's synonymous oftentimes with venture capital. And that's just not, that's just the vast majority of businesses are never going to need or receive venture capital dollars. The work to be done is to sort of find your customer set and become so tightly knit with them that you begin to build something that they can't help but want. And that, that cycle doesn't require any outside capital. That cycle is about understanding how you get close to your customers, how you, how you curate the experiments that allow you to discover what it is that they want, how do you build what they want to spec, and then you know, allow it to scale from there. And it's really about those first and second customers because once you get those, then like the third one gets easier than the second one. The fourth one's easier than the third one, right? And like things kind of take flight. Uh, but I'm very interested in how do people go and find that first uh, point of connection. If, if our mental model for entrepreneurship and if who we celebrate is only people like Mark Zuckerberg, then we just, we don't have a place in that story. 
You know, if, if the assumption is you've got to be a Harvard dropout who, you know, goes to Silicon Valley and builds cool technology, um, we don't have a, you know, most of us don't have a place in that story, right? Because we're either too old, we didn't go to Harvard, right? And by the way, we're also left wondering, but how, how you know, the very practical thing, like, well, how does somebody go to Silicon Valley and pay their rent? You know, if you're in, if you're in some program, like, and people almost feel ashamed to ask it, like, hey, and, but I get the question a lot. Hey, I got, I got into this accelerator program, but it's, it's in this city for three months and I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. Like, do people go and work, get jobs at Starbucks, right? Or they really are wondering, I can't afford to do this. I'm not independently wealthy. My parents aren't going to pay for me or I have a child, right? Or I have a, a rent obligation, like life. And so unless we can explain to people how to start things from the context of their life, we are never going to have uh, democratized the opportunity. And we are failing at this, Chris. You know, 20% of venture-backed companies are female-founded, 1% black or brown-founded. I mean, so the, 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 and they're not getting better, right? And then there's a lot of things that aren't even tracked in terms of college education access and the social networks that are required, right? So there's this whole sort of kind of, you know, dangerous story that we begin to tell. And if we make it about, well, it's, it's about you because you haven't been sufficiently talented enough, then we put the sort of the shame and the blame on the people that have never had the opportunity. So we've got to figure out how to tell stories that feel relatable for, hey, I'm in my hometown. I've got to keep paying rent. Um, but, you know, maybe I can drive Uber and learn some things in the process. Maybe I can get a job working at a coffee shop before I go build my own coffee shop. Maybe I can keep my job, but curate this kind of, um, you know, this desire I have to be an art dealer um, through pop-up events, you know? Um, so this, so the book is full of these kinds of stories because I think it's stories that help bring it to life. Um, it's not a perfect book and, and I'm working on additional iterations to it. Um, but I think we've got to help people see that there are playbooks available that do not require a lap or, uh, you know, a trip to Silicon Valley, don't require outside investors, don't require you quitting your job, don't require you uh, leaving your community. Because in fact, the good stuff and the stuff that we need takes place in your community. It takes place from the place that you're at. It takes place with the resources that you've had. You know, you have. We want we want the talent of people from you know with exactly what they've got. Um, and we got to tell stories that help make that possible. You mentioned there a moment ago that only about one in five or twenty percent of venture backed companies have a female founder, and only one percent have a black founder. What's behind those numbers? And maybe more importantly how do we as society and as business people, more importantly society, I guess, do better there to create more opportunities for folks like that? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an important question, Chris, and we're, um, you know, in the data, I mean, it's, it's so depressing. It's so sad. I mean, that, you know, COVID is disproportionately affecting small business owners, you know, you know, diverse minority entrepreneurs, uh, black entrepreneurs in particular, are just getting hammered by this thing. And, um, and women have never been sort of proportionally represented in, in the entrepreneurship space or Fortune 500. We have, you know, four black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. So it's not a good picture today. And, um, and you know, it's interesting because people think, well, how do you resolve this? You have to adopt a mentality. Here's the question I would ask an investor. If you ask an investor, talk to me about the due diligence that you run to make decisions about the investments you make, they have really, you know, thoughtful answers. Um, you know, it's like, here's the cap table I consider, you know, it's like, and I'm not a finance guy, right? But, 
you know, here's the, here's the financial considerations. We're looking for this kind of runway. We're looking for EBITDA. We're looking for, for growth. We're looking for this. And, and they have a really kind of thoughtful uh, way of doing due diligence for like the 80, you know, opportunities they might look at in a year. If you ask the question, how do the 80 opportunities that you look at in a year get to you? Like that's the million dollar question and where people don't have good answers. It's like, well, my, my friend who knows I invest in this kind of stuff, sent it to me. It's like, yeah, but that's where all the breakdown is because who's your friend and what's your friend able to see, right? So what you come to see, and I don't say this in any sort of shame-based kind of way, but what you come to see is that there's a whole um, social capital uh, infrastructure at play that unless you know how to get to the right people who know how to get you to, you know, sort of the, the this is if you're trying to raise money. It, it, from venture capitalists, which again, I go back to my argument, which is like, let's find, let's give alternative pathways. But if you have a business that you think needs venture backing, there's this whole kind of social infrastructure that is required to understand and to navigate, to get to the people that you need to get to. Um, because the, the question isn't, are there, are there investors who will invest in, you know, the, you know, the food tech, you know, innovation that you've got, there probably are. The question is then, are you going to have the, the people that know how to get you to that person? Or is the person that you need to get to, are they going to have people around them that know how to find you and pull you forward? And that's where we're failing. It's in these network effects. It's not that there isn't money being deployed in this country. There's lots of money being deployed in this country. It's, it's that we haven't created transparency and access and loose networks and inclusive networks around the people that have the ideas and the people that have sort of the means to, to make it an opportunity. And so um, that's a hard problem to solve, but we have to move beyond this question of like, you know, cause what you hear people say is like, well, we don't want to lower our standards. And, and that's not the conversation. It's not about lowering standards. It's about, but why are, why are the things that you're looking at the things that you're looking at? And that's a whole set of unconscious choices that are being exercised that have created the problem that, that we live with today. I love that you say you're not a finance guy, having earned a degree from one of the top business schools in the country and obviously being an unbelievably successful uh, entrepreneur. So appreciate your humbleness on that. <laughs> I avoided finance at the University of Chicago, but <laughs> God bless them. I think they made me take a couple. I'm not sure. Uh, there's no plaques on the, on the wall. I can assure you that. So let's talk inside baseball here. What are some of the hot opportunities, You know, maybe some of the fields with the best odds for success as people consider starting their own baseball? I'm sorry, own business, excuse me. Yeah. Oh man, well it's an interesting time because we're all we're all being pushed to um, not pushed. We're, we're cities are being reimagined, right? So if if um, if getting a job isn't uh, predicated on co-location, which is a big fundamental question that we're asking ourselves, is like, do you have to live in the city in which you work, or what is work? What is the office? Right? Is even more fundamental. So with COVID happening and with other issues, um, and employers being forced, even if it wasn't their choice, being forced to allow people to work from home and then maybe work from other places as well. People are all of a sudden asking themselves, where do I want to live? And what does it look like to create a community um, that, um, uh, I, don't know, I want to preface this by saying, this is maybe a specific consideration around, you know, working in professional services and working in tall office buildings. Yes, that's true. Um, but that's a large population set that's all of a sudden wondering, well, if we don't have to live in the city, you know, or if, we, if I don't have to go to an office in the city, well, then where do I want to live? 
So I think that there's interesting opportunities to create local economies, local businesses, local um, kind of local anything where you think you can meet a need for people and attract an audience that might not have otherwise been there um, to, to come and, and, and live in a place that maybe is a middle tar- market community or a small market community. Um, so I think there's interesting things there, you know, and, and that can take shape in a lot of different ways. I think, look, entre- the crux of entrepreneurship is you see an opportunity or a problem and you take action. So if that's an artist who says, look, I want to create some vibrant um, art installation in this community, there's opportunities today because people are, are depressed and lonely and we're feeling divided. If you, if you have you know, aspirations to create a healthier political environment, it's a great time to be alive because that's a problem. You know, if you think social media is a problem, great. That means that there's opportunities for that. Um, so whatever is feeling painful, whatever is feeling missing, like, and this is where I go back to the question, if you want to be an entrepreneur, that's the wrong question. The right question is what's been on your heart lately? What's been on your mind lately, right? And, and it's honoring those things. That's the crux and the beginning of where we, we see innovation in this country. So it's a, you know, you might say it's a hard time to be alive. And, and that's also the same reason why it's a great time to be alive because there's never been more opportunities, um, uh, you know, to have, you know, conversations, build local economies, talk about racial injustice and, and structural exclusion in this country. You know, th- this is like, the, the problems are being elevated, right? And so therefore it must be the solutions. And the final thing I would say in this is, it's the people closest to the opportunity, the people closest to the problem, those with the most lived experience around the, the thing that we wanna solve for that are best equipped to solve it, right? And so the answers aren't gonna come from Silicon Valley in this moment. Uh, it's gonna come from people that are um, living in you know small towns and rural communities and living in the neighborhoods across the city of Chicago and and here in Tennessee, where I am right now, those are the people that are going to come forward with the, with the best solutions because they live the realities on the ground, right? So it's, um, I believe that entrepreneurship at its best solves important problems and that it's democratized in how we do it. And that's, that's um, we're at a moment in our country where I, that could not be more important. Uh, so, so true. And so thanks for sharing your insights on that. We're just about out of time today and, and you have to come back because there's so much more to talk about, especially when you, you release your next book, which I can't wait and no pressure for that. But before we go, can you please tell our listeners how they can find Third Shift Entrepreneur uh, or get in touch with you? Yeah. So go to thirdshiftentrepreneurallspelledout.com or uh, find me on LinkedIn. I do live coaching calls every week with, with amazing entrepreneurs, mostly military veterans, uh, but others as well that are starting things. And it's not always businesses, you know, it's it, like you just, you see a problem, you want to fix a problem. Let's, let's create a pathway because we need your hustle, your innovation, um, your beautiful inspiration. We need those things in the marketplace and I'm, I'm here to serve that. So if I can be a support to anybody, please reach out. And uh, the books are available where books are sold. And um, I'd be happy to come back, Chris. I appreciate you. No, thank you, Todd. Thank you so very much for being here today. It was great seeing you and catching up with you. It's been too long. And thank you for turning into Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. We'll be back next Tuesday with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.